For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, remembering the joyous life and music of Chicano pioneer Lalo Guerrero. Listen to love letters written to the library. Beth Surdit explores the nocturnal world of great horned owls. And Krista Shields surveys the Hollywood star system. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This Christmas Eve would have been the 100th birthday of Arizona music legend Lalo Guerrero. Known around the world as the father of Chicano music, Lalo died in 2005 at the age of 88. Arizona Public Media's Nancy Montoya spent years getting to know the troubadour and recorded hours of interviews and live performances over a 20-year period. Next, Nancy Montoya looks back at Guerrero's colorful career and the affection he always expressed for his hometown, Tucson. So I wrote this song to show you how much I love it. You can brag about L.A. and the city by the bay. You can sing about New York, but I thank that crazy stork that ignored all of those towns and flew on and on and on till she dropped me in Tucson. <laughs> Tucson. Lalo Guerrero was born in Tucson on Christmas Eve a hundred years ago. He grew up on Meyer Street in Barrio Viejo, south of downtown. Viejo barrio, barrio viejo Solo hay lugares parejos On his 80th birthday, Lalo's son, Dan Guerrero, surprised his father with a visit to his dad's old neighborhood. As luck would have it, the house on Meyer Street was vacant. Dan was able to tour the old house with his dad and reminisce. De los hogares felices there was always music in this house. It was the happiest house in our whole neighborhood. Piano or, or the Victrola or the guitar and my mom singing. It was the first time Lalo had been back to his old house in nearly 60 years. Wow, it's great. I love you, I love you. I've dreamt so much about you, about the inside. For decades, Lalo had remembered the old Meyer Street house as a child. There was the fireplace. You know what? I remember this as a huge fireplace. I, I imagined it like with a bear rug and me in front. The fireplace, not as huge as he remembered. And then his son Dan leads his father to an old bathroom. Wait a minute. I think that's the same tub. I do, too. <laughs> I think it's the same tub. I used to stand here, I was small, and I'd dive in. <laughs> I'd take the dive into the tub. 
It's the same. Nothing's changed. What did change was Lalo himself. He went from a skinny kid growing up in Barrio Viejo to unimaginable fame. But in the beginning, he lived hand to mouth as a musician. In 1939 came La Cancion Mexicana, the Mexican song. And I wrote it and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to have it uh, uh, recorded by a great lady, uh, a singer of that, of that period named Lucha Reyes. And she did a fantastic job on it. And it became a big, big, big hit. Huge. The most, I think it's become the most popular song that I've ever written. And, uh, and it, that was in, uh, she recorded it in 1941. And to this day, it is still, every mariachi a group in, uh, in Mexico knows that song. Lalo Guerrero became a prolific writer from love ballads like Nunca Jamás. Nunca jamás pensé llegar a quererte tanto. To the songs that made audiences weep with laughter, like the Ode to the Tortilla. Uh, staple in our diet. I get very emotional when I see this. <laughs> I love tortillas, and I love them dearly, you'll never know just how sincerely I love the corn ones, y también de harina, but when my wife calls out from la cocina, there's no tortillas, there's only bread, there's no tortillas, and I feel so sad, my grief I cannot hide, there's no tortilla for my refries. <laughs> Then there was the Pachuco era. He wrote all the music for the 1981 movie Zoot Suit, starring Edward James Olmos. In 1996, President Bill Clinton presented Lalo with the National Medal of Arts. In D.C., Guerrero accepted the award that year along with Stephen Sondheim and Lionel Hampton. Viejo barrio, barrio viejo. Until his death at age 88, Lalo continued to write and perform. On Christmas Eve this year, Lalo Guerrero would have been 100 years old. He remains a Tucson treasure. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya, a fan for life. De los hogares felices, de las alegres familias, 
de esa gente que yo quise por las tardes se sentaban afuera a tomar el fresco Four years ago, Tucson blogger Rachel Miller launched an invitational project called Love Letters to Tucson. It was a way to explore our community through the eyes of others and reconsider the basic elements that make up Tucson. Now, Rachel Miller and the Pima County Public Library are asking library users to share their thoughts about what their local branch means to them. Anyone can participate. New letters will be revealed monthly on the library's website and at Love Letters to Tucson online. Next, we'll hear two examples as read by the authors. First, Adiba Nelson gets personal about her feelings. Dear Pima County Public Library, I have a confession to make. I've been cheating on you for a very, very long time. Things like television stole my eye with its channels and shopping networks. Things like radio killed my love of silence, rendering me helpless to the rhythm of music, the staccato of a drumbeat, as opposed to a stifled sentence. It's sad, I know. Especially since you introduced me to my love of words. You are literally the keeper of the thing I love most, words. I'm a jerk. It's awful. And yes, I take for granted the fact that you are always there, willing to take me back at any time even if I owe you money, which I'm pretty sure I do. I promise to do better, Pima County Public Library. I promise to visit more often. I promise to introduce you to my kid. Oh, yes, you didn't know about that, did you? Yes, while I've been away cheating, I also made a person. But don't worry, she's sweet and kind and loves books, and I can't wait for you to meet her. Love your remorseful lover, Adiba. P.S. Could you do me a solid and wipe out my signs? Along with her letter, Rosalia Pierre included a photo of a poster featuring Yoda, which says, Read, and the Force is with you. Why I love my library. My relationship with libraries goes back to elementary school in rural New Mexico. Books became my mentors my view to a wide world, knowledge, and entertainment. Wherever I went, I made sure my family had access to a library. The photo I have sent comes from the Duncan Library in southeastern Arizona circa 1983, where I was a volunteer. I moved my family to Tucson to attend the University of Arizona. Our library was the Columbus Library on 22nd Street. When I became a county employee, the El Pueblo was my neighbor, and I enjoyed many years there. Now Martha Cooper is my newest library. I missed it during its recent renovation. Every library has a different flavor, and I enjoy it all. Thanks for being my friends and good neighbors. Indeed, I love my library. Rosalia Pierre. We just heard Tucson residents Rosalia and Adiba share their love letters to the Pima County Public Library. You can find a link to read more and an invitation to write your own on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
Author and wildlife illustrator Beth Surdit listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also tracks a master of camouflage right here in Tucson. August 2015. At the edge of nightfall, I could sense a storm coming. When you live in the desert, you can smell moisture like a hound picks up scent. My neighbor, Keith, knocked on my door. I hope I'm not bothering you. You told me to come get you, he said. There's an owl. I followed him, not far, and he pointed at the unmistakable shape of a great horned owl perched atop a utility pole. It was on our roof, Keith whispered. There might be two of them. The owl turned its head towards us. Lightning crackled and cut the sky into jagged pieces. But the owl stayed in place, and so did we. When I started asking about the owls over a year ago, neighbors showed me the large twiggy nest that most likely started out as a Harris's hawks. Owls don't build, they move in. Looking like a stack of kindling with stuffing, it sat very high up in a shaggy bark eucalyptus tree where the owls used to be. I saw the ancient pine where the owls no longer showed up. Every place was past tense. A year later, I photographed an adult owl perched like a sentry near the old nest. A neighbor, walking her little meal-sized dog, said that she talked to one of the owls and it seemed to listen to her. I think it was probably scoping out the pooch. A few days later, at dusk, at the turn to my house, a great horned owl flew from behind me, just a few feet above me to my right, and landed in a nearby tree. It seemed to be looking at me, where I'd stopped on the dirt road, but then a small sound brought my glance down. Looking up at me from four feet away, a juvenile owl's big eyes stared as it hopped once, an ungainly motion, stopped, hopped the other way, and looked at me with what can best be described as puzzlement. Neither of us knew the exact etiquette in this situation, but the adult did, flying in a big loop. It returned, waited, and then flew again, this time followed by the little one I'd almost stepped on. During the rest of this last summer and into fall, I learned where they slept during the day. Until the water became too cold, my end-of-day ritual was to go for a swim near their favorite trees, wait for the owls to wake up, and call to each other. They became used to me, no longer squawking an alarm call at my presence. Just before darkness, they'd fly out to hunt. I named them Poncho and Lefty. Poncho is larger and older, with a deeper voice, and bolder than shy young Lefty, who tended to favor bushier leaf cover before eventually flying to more exposed branches. Poncho always looked down at me as if I were some errant peasant who had wandered into the royal realm. They are magnificent, standing 18 to 24 inches tall. In flight, 
They have a wingspan of three to five feet. Their coloration blends into tree bark so perfectly that only a call, a head turn, or leaves rustling when there's no breeze shows me where they are. When the owls are awake, black-centered yellow eyes stare down at me straight on because an owl is unable to move its huge tubular eyes independently. To see, it swivels its entire head as much as 270 degrees. From underneath, the rear view looks like so many delicately striped petticoats and soft white bloomers covering sturdy legs, ending in toes sensitive as a human's palm that can clamp with unrelenting pressure. The gun-colored talons, one of them serrated, are so sharp they can puncture a spine. Owls excrete bright white splashes of uric acid, creating a map on the ground, leading to gray pellets of indigestible animal parts. These densely packed one to two inch pods are stored in the gizzard, then gently regurgitated about 10 hours later. When people talk about a girl's night out, it usually involves shopping, spas, drinks. My friends come over to see what an owl gacked up. Pack rat, said wildlife photographer Doris Evans, peering at the tiny jaw fragments and bones lined up next to fur on my work table. Look at the shape of the teeth and the yellowing. That signifies rodent, she said. The death of one animal fosters life in another. 50% of baby owls die in the first year, the majority from starvation. If they survive that year, these powerful predators can average 15 years in the wild, more if food is abundant, that is, if they avoid being hit by cars and eating rodents poisoned by humans. The last time I stood listening to Poncho and Lefty in a star-filled night, I retrieved another pellet, curious to see who's inside. Tracking this gives me clues to the state of my small patch of environment and pieces of the puzzle of how to care for it. I have noticed that the rabbit population has diminished greatly, and now I see mating pairs as creators of food for the local raptors. Poncho and Lefty disappeared end of October, the youngster's time having come to find its own territory, which might be only a mile away. Over the next weeks, I would stand under the trees where they had slept, hoping one of them would return. I spotted a flutter, higher than any ladder would reach. Even so, I stretched up my arm, so wanting to bring that owl feather home. Right about now, mid-December, you may hear owls calling to each other with raucous, insistent sounds. Two weeks ago, at one o'clock in the morning, the hoots were so loud that they boomed through my closed doors and windows. This is courtship the owls elevating their hormones for the next breeding cycle. Look for big nests. Form a citizen science brigade with your neighbors, as I do. With patience and luck, you may find a great horned owl or two. 
It's not that they are rare, but that they are so very adept at camouflage. Recently, in a cold dusk so windy, I thought it snatched up my voice when I hooted. Two great horned owls flew in close to me and swooped upwards into the trees where I'd watched Poncho and Lefty so often. My smile was as wide and bright as the new moon sliver in the darkening sky. Through her illustrations and observations, Beth Serdit invites you to pay attention to the critters that crawl, fly, and skitter around your neighborhood. We have more of her Art of Paying Attention series online. If you're visiting California, Beth's drawing of a Townsend's big-eared bat was chosen for inclusion in the Los Angeles Billboard Creative Show and will be on view on Melrose between Larchmont and Gower through January 8th. The Arizona Master Naturalist Association is seeking dedicated people who wish to become certified master naturalists. The deadline to apply for the 60-hour course is December 31st. You can find more information by looking for Beth Serdit's illustration of a great horned owl on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. They had faces then. That was the title of a Hollywood film retrospective written in 1988. Part of the book's thesis was to remark upon the contemporary lack of larger-than-life movie stars, the kind whose dramatic looks were portrayed in magazines and on movie posters in a grandiose style usually reserved for Greek gods. Now, almost three decades later, we're even further removed from the days when being a Hollywood star also meant being an icon. Film essayist Chris DeShiel takes a look back. Is there such a thing as a movie star anymore? Well, it depends on what we mean by that. The use of the word star for an actor began as theater slang, and it meant someone whose talent shone brighter than the average performer. When Hollywood adopted the term, it gradually took on a greater meaning. In a film, the actor's face becomes a work of art in itself. You can see it in detail, and a lot can be communicated just through expressions, unlike on the stage where the voice is preeminent. And as actors developed a style peculiar to film, a new relationship to the audience emerged. The face and physical presence of the actor, along with the voice when sound came in, began to have a power of its own, independently of whatever role he or she happened to be playing. Film producers and directors noticed this, and the idea of the movie star was carefully crafted. Referring to stars, people used to say, the camera loves her, or loves him. And that meant that there was a special quality of that person that could be captured on film in a beautiful way, in a way that would captivate an audience so that people identified with the star's image and personality. Greta Garbo is probably the best early example. She was lovely in real life, but when her face was on a movie screen, there was something mysteriously alluring about her that would just grab viewers and draw them into the picture. The studio cultivated this romantic quality in the kinds of films she acted in, how she was lit and from what angles, and of course, the publicity. But not everyone had this kind of quality. The studios would try different performers to see if they clicked. Many didn't, or only hit a minor key. But a few became what they called stars, major players that you could build an expensive movie around. Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, Errol Flynn. At one time or another, they could all bring people into the theater just because they were in the film. Audiences wanted to see these faces, these people, reappearing again and again in different roles. 
Now, each star was also an actor, by which I mean that there had to be some skill in performing a part in a film. Of course, a lot of stars pretty much played themselves most of the time, managing to be compelling just through force of personality. Gable and Cooper and John Wayne come to mind. James Stewart had a recognizable persona, the sincere, somewhat awkward, small-town boy, back when they called him Jimmy Stewart. But then later in his career, he stretched to become a tougher and more versatile actor. Cary Grant had one of the most unforgettable star personas in Hollywood. Consequently, people underestimated what he could do. So when you see him in one of his great performances, such as His Girl Friday, it's astounding. Betty Davis, with her unconventional looks, could be glamorous when she wanted to be, and she usually played a certain kind of melodramatic part, but she also thrived on roles that allowed her to submerge herself into a character. Then there were actors who were famous enough, but they were primarily actors and not stars. The British especially were like this because they came from the stage originally and had that fine English stage training. Charles Lawton and Laurence Olivier, for instance. In any case, the movie star was a special kind of an actor with an elusive power. When the old Hollywood studios finally faded away, stardom faded with it, ever so slowly. The new type of film actor, the anti-stars, if you will, like Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift, made such an impact that they became stars in spite of themselves. A star then came to mean an actor whose style of performance struck a chord with audiences. It would have been unimaginable for an eccentric risk-taker like Jack Nicholson to be a star in classic Hollywood. But in the 70s and 80s, it was just what people wanted. So, do movie stars still exist today? At the risk of offending those of you who feel a special connection to a current film actor, I would have to say no. What we have are celebrities, popular actors, even a few that are glamorous. But that special quality that clung to a movie star, I don't see it anymore. And why is this? Actors are no longer carefully groomed by the management. They control their own image, and they're not always good at that. But I think a deeper reason is that the relationship of the audience to the film has changed. There is no longer that strong identification with the face and the persona on screen. People seem to crave excitement, euphoria, instead of that involvement with the image that used to be so powerful. Filmmakers pump adrenaline into the movies with computer-generated effects and fast, relentless rhythm. The personality has been sacrificed in favor of the spectacle. And in fact, many of the younger actors seem interchangeable with anonymous fashion model type good looks. It's tempting to bemoan the loss of the movie star, but I think in some ways it's probably a good thing. Inevitably in films of quality, the focus returns to excellent acting and portrayal of character rather than an idealized personality. The star steps aside to make room for art. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.